Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JB3, and it has been a rough couple of weeks. And I know despite me taking time away and detaching from the podcast, that has not taken away some of the ills of society that we currently live in. Um, another black man was murdered by the police. I'm currently not watching, but the trial of another black man murdered by the police is taking place. And it is just really difficult to rest when all of those things are going on. But I am glad to be back in the studio. I'm glad to have another episode for you all, but I want to be mindful and and just take a moment to acknowledge the realities around us, because in many, many cases we have to try to compartmentalize and it's unfair and unnecessary. I want to just call a thing a thing in the words of Dr. Yarnesia Dyson. And I just want to hold a moment to acknowledge what has been lost and also what has been expressed in our society. As we prepare for today's episode, I want you all to think about your basic public health tenets when it comes to disparities and inequities. And so as far as we know, disparities are simply the differences of health outcomes or health treatment based on a, a any disease that you could think of. I mean, there's disparities when it comes to asthma, there's disparities when it comes to um, weight for newborn babies. But when we start talking about inequities, I like to think of that as these structural issues with difference. And so today we're going to hear from Andre Marcel Harris, who is a sickle cell advocate. As a person with lived experience, he has a certain firsthand understanding of the nuance and the systems that you have to navigate in order to receive treatment. And even in that, there are barriers to access care. And so I'm really excited to hear from Andre on today and really break down why this inequity continues to uphold itself and hopefully identify some solutions on what we could be doing to address this inequity. So Andre, we'd love for you to introduce yourself to the listeners. Yeah. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, as uh, Mr. Bill said, I am Andre uh, Marcel Harris. Um, I am originally from Kalamazoo, Michigan, uh, but I just uh, moved to Houston, Texas. Um, and I am a graduate student at uh, University of Houston's Graduate College of Social Work in the dual MSW PhD program. And I'm happy to be here. That's extremely exciting. I wish when I was looking at my master's program, I would actually consider a dual, right? So that I can get the terminal degree, but I can also get the research degree at the same time. So kind of what was your approach when um, looking at different programs? Yeah, so um, I was a Ronald E. McNair Scholar in undergrad. And so for those who may not know what that is, it's basically a post-baccalaureate achievement program that is housed under uh, TRIO programs. Um, So it's federally funded and um, it allows uh, undergraduates to prepare for research and for the PhD. 
So for two years in my undergrad program, I did a lot of research. I've, I've been published. Um, I had the privilege of going to Thailand to present that research. Um, and so one of the mandates of the program is that you have to uh, go and get your PhD after your undergrad. So that's why I'm in a dual MSW PhD program, because those who are familiar with social work, you can rarely, I don't think there's any program that you can go in and get a PhD in social work without having to have a master's. So there are some dual MSW PhD programs that satisfy that. So that's kind of why I'm in the program and that's kind of what guided uh, my, my path. So I applied to several uh, schools that had the dual option. Um, and I ended up here at University of Houston. All right. So the reason why I wanted to invite you on the show is because I've been watching you blossom in the field for a while. And of course, I've done my homework. And it sounds to me, and it, it's apparent, that you are an advocate for sickle cell disease. You want to tell us a little bit more about it? And what does, what does it mean? Yeah, uh, I am an advocate, I will say, um, in full disclosure, and I don't mind telling anyone, I uh, live with sickle cell disease. Um, and if that means I'm biased, then I guess so be it. But I am also a sickle cell advocate. Um, and so sickle cell disease, um, if I could be um, very short in a one-on-one, um, it is a genetic blood disorder. Um, and people who are diagnosed with sickle cell disease have to inherit um, a copy of the trait um, from uh, their parents. Um, and so it's not something that I could develop after I'm born. It's not something that I could, it's not contagious, uh, uh, it's not communicable. Um, if you were born with it, then you're born with it. If you're not, then you don't have it. Um, and then also, uh, while I say this initial explanation, it is not solely a black disease. And that's one of the platforms I stand on as an advocate to educate people that sickle cell disease is a genetic blood disorder, period. If you have blood, you have the uh, potential to inherit um, the sickle cell trait from your parents. You could be blue, purple, white, green, yellow, you know, whatever color or ethnicity you are. Um, if your parents have the trait, um, and they have you, there is a chance that you may have sickle cell disease or you may get sickle cell trait. But we can talk about that later. So another thing that, that's become pretty uh, prevalent, at least in the research that I did, is there are certain disparities when it comes to sickle cell disease. You wanna to talk to that? Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> as I said before, uh, race, um, well race, uh, is the underpinning of most all disparities that we see. Um, but race um, is definitely a driving force of why there's disparate care um, for those who live with sickle cell disease. Um, as someone who has a social work background and who's trained um, and was drilled to learn the code of ethics for social workers, um, it has given me a unique perspective to use sickle cell from that a lot of other people do not. A lot of people that work in this space um, are MDs or PhDs with STEM degrees. Um, so they are very focused on a medical model. Um, they're very focused on, you know, 
you know, genetic research. They're very focused on, you know, those type of things, but I'm focused on how do we uh, address the social determinants of health that, again, drive why there's disparate uh, care for sickle cell patients. And I think, James, we have to really, when we have this discussion, we have to go broader and think of, even though it's not a Black disease in the United States, the most, the biggest population that have sickle cell disease are African-Americans. And so if we understand a lot of the historical traumas that African-Americans have faced and a lot of the things that we are dealing with as a race, as an ethnicity, um, then we can understand why a lot of people with sickle cell have um, terrible um, health outcomes. Um, all of this comes, comes into play and I, I try to be that voice to remind people we have to learn or remind ourselves about history um, in order for us to go forward. We can't ignore Henrietta Lacks. We can't ignore um, Tuskegee. We can't ignore um, a lot of these other people that we may not have heard of that have been taken advantage of by government agencies or, or medical agencies that have been mistreated, um, that have been the reason why there's medical mistrust. We can't ignore them in order to close the gap in equity. So let's talk about some of those outcomes, right? Because I know eventually <clears throat> we'll talk about solutions, but what are some of the outcomes that you see as far as disparate treatment um, for African-American sickle cell patients? Yeah, so again, I am biased because I live it. So I can tell you a lot because I, I've experienced it firsthand. I think that's one thing that gives me also another perspective as an advocate is that I live, I live with this. It's not just a, uh, a, a, you know, thing I do in my spare time. And I'm not an advocate, I'm still a patient. Um, and so a lot of sickle cell patients, especially those who are of African-American um, identity, um, they have issues um, with a lot of the social determinants of health as in, uh, insurance access, um, if we know that, you know, a lot of people in the African-American community do not have health insurance, um, they do not have life insurance. Um, just that those two alone, that's, that could be a whole other episode. Um, transportation, um, that's a big one. Um, like I said, I, I just moved here from living in North Carolina for 16 years. I went to um, a hospital that was an hour away from me, that was the closest place um, that uh, had a sickle cell clinic. So in order to see my doctor, I had to travel at least an hour. Um, and for a lot of people, that's unfeasible. They can't do it. And so um, that alone can be a driving factor why there's a lot of disparity. Um, I saw a lot of people who um, pass away early. I call it personally the valley of shadow death. We call it the transition phase in the sickle cell space. Um, and it's the space between when you are like around maybe 16, I would say, until maybe 24, 25, 26. And, and those years are the times where most people are going off to college. Um, then you graduate college, you may go to grad school, you may um, start working and then you know you're winning off your parents insurance you're becoming your own adult that's the deadliest place for a lot of sickle cell patients because they have a chronic illness 
most of their parents don't have adequate insurance. And if they do, they only can stay maybe till 23, 26. Afterwards, they're not covered anymore. Um, they don't have a medical home, so they use the emergency room um, as their primary mode of seeking health care um, because they don't have insurance and they can't afford co-pays. So these are, these are I, I really could talk forever about little small things that really make a difference um, in sickle cell patients. Um, housing, again, if we know about history, if we know about the, the racial wealth gap, if we know about redlining, if we know about all of these things that are taught to people who are economics majors and, and history majors, um, that most people who deal with sickle cell probably don't care about. These are important topics. Because if we know that African Americans were specifically chosen or discriminated against from living in certain areas, and now they don't have access to adequate housing, um, <laughs> then that that definitely uh, translates to dis uh, disparate healthcare. Um, so that's why I'm big on saying that transportation is healthcare, housing is healthcare. Um, I'm big on social determinants of health because if we get Get people transportation. If somebody lives an hour away from their doctor and we can get them transportation to get there, then the doctor may catch something that they might have missed because that person missed an appointment. The doctor may find something a lot sooner if they're more um, on top of their appointments. And I hate to kind of get in the weeds, but I do want to mention this, James, is one of the things that I think is a cuss word, especially in this field, is when doctors call patients uh, non-compliant and adherent. Um, and again, this comes to the social determinants. You know that your uh, your uh, patient does not have appropriate transportation. Um, they may as well. Like I, I'm I'm always someone who wants to keep up with my health. I come to every appointment, I'm early, you know, I'm on time, I, I do what the doctor asked me to do, but if I don't have a way to get there, then I can't really adhere to your, your, your treatment plan. And so if there are no social support, if there's no wraparound services, then the medical services aren't going to be any help. If you are the best hematologist in the world, um, and you do not understand that your patient has social problems that is preventing them from being a quote unquote compliant or adherent patient, then to me, how effective are you? Um, because it's not gonna be effective if I can't access it. And so equity to me cannot be equity until we improve accessibility. So I'm glad that you you mentioned providers, right? A lot of my research is around implicit bias. And so mm. what role do you see for provider bias here? Like you've mentioned this idea of non-compliance or not adhering to the medical treatment plan mm. without considering the environmental factors or the social factors that predict or determine how mm -hmm. you can be compliant. But how about provider bias? I love the fact that you brought these questions up and, and again, that confirms, you know, we're brothers in the realm of social work because a lot of people don't think about this. Um, but I'm, I'm sure my, the podcast listeners won't be able to see this, but I am going to hold up a book and I'm going to mention it. There's a book that um, is almost like a Bible to me called Just Medicine, and I hope I can talk about books here. Yes. 
Um, but there's a book called Just Medicine, and it's written by uh, Dana Bowen Matthew. James, I don't know if you've heard of it, but if you haven't, it's a great book that talks about uh, the subtitle is A Cure for Racial Inequality in American Healthcare. It talks about a lot about implicit bias. Um, so I think that is a huge conversation to have um, because there are, again, racism is at the heart of why there are a lot of people who have disparate outcomes in healthcare. A lot of providers um, believe that uh, African Americans and withstand pain more than other races. Um, that's not a myth. A lot of people, when I say that, they think that that's a myth. No, I, I know providers who have said that to me and who have denied me pain medication um, because they believe, um, they basically believe I could handle it a lot better um, than somebody else. Um, uh, there's another book called The Political Determinants of Health by Daniel Dawes, um, and it talks about bias and implicit bias and how um, how healthcare is politicized and how to address an inequity and inequality from a political perspective. Um, but I really think that provider bias has to be attacked from education. I know this may sound weird. You may think someone with the MD should be educated and know, but they it's impossible for a provider to be 100% knowledgeable about every disease and every Ill ailment that exists. It's, it's impossible. Just like in, in the realm of social work, I'm sure you may have heard James, but as a grad student, you know, we hear the terms uh, uh, cultural competence all the time. But there's something that we always say, it's impossible. It is impossible for me to be 100% culturally competent with every culture that is 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 in existence it's impossible for me to know everything about everything so i do understand that every provider may not be an expert in sickle cell um but uh the some of these things are just common sense that black people are humans so if uh if we have pain like anybody else then you know we're humans we, we feel pain like anyone else um, these are the things uh, that have to be addressed in uh, the bias realm. I think a lot of providers, um, they believe that uh, Black people, again, the mo majority of people who have sickle cell are Black, that we're drug seekers. Um, fortunately, I've never had an issue out of the hospital where I had issues getting pain medication, but I do have friends who their, doctor, their doctors that see them on a regular basis, give them the third degree about refilling narcotic or opioids. Um, and I know we're in an opioid crisis, um, but if somebody lives with a chronic disease, of course, um, there's some type of validity for them to need opioids. And James, here's another thing I like to always bring up, is the fact that, um, and I'm trying to word this because I don't want people to get the wrong way, but especially with us with sickle cell disease, we are uh, we are managed by people who are hematologists. Providers, their specialty is hematology. And a lot of clinics, a lot of hospitals, they group hematology and oncology in the same clinic. Um, I'm saying this to say, uh, a lot of times I've been in the same clinics, in the same rooms, in the same floors when I'm admitted to the hospitals as, as people with cancer. And the, 
the culture around cancer as opposed to the culture around sickle cell are night and day. Um, I would see people, you know, ask for an ungodly amount of narcotics and the providers break their neck to give it to them. But on the same floor, in the same hospital, I'm having to fight with you for you to even give me uh, half of what cancer patients get. And again, this is no competition. You know, I, I'm not trying to, you know, and I think a lot of people think I'm trying to be petty. That's not the, the goal when I'm bringing stuff like this up is a lot of the patients that do have cancer are white. And you see that there are differences in the level of empathy and care when it comes to cancer patients and even the black cancer patients. There is a mindset um, that if you have cancer, then, then you deserve the world. But then sickle cell disease, there's third degree in emergency rooms. They don't administer the medication that people need. A lot of people die with sickle cell disease in the emergency room. Um, a lot of people die seeking care, which is sad because uh, emergency room doctors are skilled at saving people's lives who have their heads almost sawed off, but can't help someone with a chronic illness. And, and these are things that we have to attend. And you gotta stop me here because I could I could ramble all night. No, you're, you're fine. These are things that I talk about all the time. No, I've I've got wheels turning, right? So I'm glad that you brought up this comparison of conditions, right? Between yeah. cancer and sickle cell, because one of the things that becomes very clear to me, being more like the health policy space, is the funding, right? There's yeah. a ton, I'm talking millions upon billions of dollars that get thrown into mm -hmm. cancer research. And like you mentioned, it's not a black disease. I'm using air quotes. Mm -hmm. When we talk about sickle cell disease, you're talking about not a lot of money, significant yeah. gaps in the service delivery options, and therefore, and therefore the experience yes. is very different. Yes. And you know, I'm always about I, I often bring up in presentations this idea of the tolerance for black pain. Mm-hmm. When we talk about provider bias, we talk about this, the power differential between a patient and a provider. Mm -hmm. And so a provider can say no, and mm -hmm. then that, that's the end of it. Mm -hmm. But what it does is it perpetuates this tolerance that says, because you're Black, because you have these symptoms, because it doesn't match up with what I've been trained in or what the checklist says, I'm not going to give you any medication. And I think that's yeah. in many cases what drives like our maternal mortality rate crisis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like no one wants to talk about it, but the fact that we say yeah. it's okay, you got it, don't worry about it. And then we lose black moms every other day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up too. There was a study, um, I can't remember like the name of the study, uh, and I could provide it with you after we get off if you want to provide that to the listeners. Um, I'll have to just dig for it for a while, but there was a study that was done, and I think multiple times, but uh, of course, like I said, sickle cell disease is a genetic blood disorder, so uh, a group of researchers took sickle cell and I believe Tay-Sachs, which is another genetic disorder, um, and they compared the funding. Um, now, sickle cell disease is estimated, and I'm really high-key uh, being emphatic on the word estimated. It's estimated that 100,000 people in the United States live with sickle cell disease. But we honestly believe it's a lot more than that. That's just an, a guesstimation. Um, however, 
uh, with TASEX, TASEX, I think it's about maybe 60,000 people that they estimate to live in the United States. It may be less than that. Um, I bring up this comparison to say that the amount of funding that uh, TASEX gets compared to sickle cell is, is uh, it's egregious. The, the C, um, if you need proof that racism is alive not only in provider bias and, and how providers treat uh, people with disease, it's also alive in a policy and a uh, funding perspective. And that's one reason I didn't mention, uh, one reason why I chose to come to University of Houston's Graduate College of Social Work. It is one of like two uh, uh, colleges of social work, social work that have a political social work specialty. And so I was very adamant of attacking health equity from a policy and political civic engagement perspective and from more of a scientific perspective. Anyway, so I say that to say, to see uh, the amount of money that Tay-Sachs gets and, and other disease, um, Lord have mercy, cystic fibrosis is another one. Um, to see the amount of money that they get and they don't have near as much as the population as sickle cell. Sickle cell disease is the most common genetic disorder in the United States, uh, most common genetic blood disorder in the United States. Um, and we do not get the, uh, the funding that we deserve. Um, and then also, it, it's almost a double-edged sword because I'm also an advocate that does a lot of uh, policy advocacy. And when we go to legislative sessions, they always say, well, we need more data to be comfortable with giving you more money. And we say, well, we need more money to give you data. <laughs> we can't, you see what I'm saying? We can't just, uh, you know, it'll be nice if we could just, you know, conduct a, a study um, with no funding, but that's not how research works. I think every graduate student can attest to the fact that you can't do quality research without some type of funding. Um, and so until we get the amount of funding that we need, we're not going to get the accurate amount of data. Um, and so these are the things that we're fighting for. And, and some strides have been made in the last couple of years, but there's still a long way to go. But yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Like, there has to be more research done to find, and this is one reason that also drives me to be a graduate student. So there's a lot of pharma pharmaceutical companies and STEM researchers trying to find a cure. Um, that's awesome. We have never seen as much interest in sickle cell disease have, as we've seen in the last five years. But there needs to be more people that are concerned about, as I said again, the social implications of this disease. And that's what drives me as a social work student um, that's uh, that will be researching political social work um, and how to be deployed in that space to be able to make a difference for not only just sickle cell, but other rare diseases and chronic diseases um, to get policy changes that they need. You mentioned that people are advocating for funding, advocating for more research. What else are people asking like the powers that be for and saying they are necessary for sickle cell disease? Yeah, uh, so here's, here's uh, as an advocate, as someone who is um, 
in, uh, interested, like I said, in social. One of the big things that we're talking about now is making sure that people get access to insurance. Um, having access to insurance will close a lot of the gap that we see. Um, a lot of sickle cell patients are uninsured. They avoid going to the emergency room until the last minute, till they're half dead, and, and that's not to sound insensitive, but people literally wait until the last minute until they go into the emergency room because why? They've been discriminated against so many times. There is a show on Netflix. If people really want to see how sickle cell patients are treated, there's a show on Netflix called Linux Hill, I believe. And I think the third, no, the sixth episode, one of the episodes has a patient with sickle cell disease and the way that the ER doctor treats him. And, and it's funny because I, when I watched it, I was appalled, I was driven to tears because again, I live with this disease. And I posted my outrage on Twitter and people came all on my tweet and was like, well, no, she was being, and that's nothing, you, you can't invalidate <laughs> my experience because you don't know about it, you don't live this every day. And I saw the fact that there was a person, and I'm not trying to get in the weeds about this episode, but it really illustrates, and I admonish you if you haven't seen it and your listeners to watch it, it really illustrates what we go through on an everyday basis. There was a white man before the sickle cell patient that presented in the ER who was depressed, and he basically was there, he wanted someone to talk to, basically. And the doctor was like, well, I'm not, uh, I'm not comfortable with prescribing you medication just because blah, blah, blah. She ended up providing him, if I'm not mistaken, a script for some type of antidepressant um, and sent him on his way. There was so much empathy. There was so much concern. There was so much care in that interaction with that patient. And then right afterwards, a sickle cell patient presents with a, a sickle cell crisis, which are extremely painful that require strong narcotics to address um, and he, to my, to my uh, standards, was being very respectful and very calm. He was treated to me like trash. Um, and this is what happens all the time. And so what, wh why was there a difference? And I think there's just a racial difference that, especially a black, young black male that presents with a bubble coat or a hoodie to the emergency room and they have, uh, a Walkman on with a uh, rap on and you can hear the rap and they have uh, their headphones in. And, and so the, the providers will assume, well, he's not in pain because he's listening to music. There's so many things that, that play in there. I, I use music, I use headphones to kind of tune out. You know, it helps me cope with the pain. You know, we with sickle cell deal with so much pain. So when it gets to the point that we have to go to the emergency room, it's at a point where we're at no return and, and we're just looking for relief and all we get met with is uh, discrimination. Um, and so again, if I, if I said to the clerk at an emergency room, I have cancer and I'm experiencing pain, there would be no question. Um, but because I say I, I have sickle cell disease and I believe I'm having a crisis, there has been times, James, that I've waited in an emergency room for upwards to 18 hours before I was even put in a room or given pain medication. There were times where I passed out, wait, because the pain was just so uh, 
uh, excruciating. I couldn't deal with it. Uh, these are things that I'm promising you, if a cancer patient ever said, or if somebody else with cystic fibrosis or, or PASACs ever said that they waited in the emergency room for that long and they passed out or they just were crippled over in pain, the hospital that they were at would probably shut down because they would sue the socks off. Um, again, I could talk on and on about these things because I live with it. So please stop me when I'm talking to you. No, you're fine. You're fine. So it sounds like in order for us to reach equity, one, we need to start with changing the mindsets and the value systems when it comes to sickle cell, like acknowledging that it's a chronic condition, that a particular population may be more disproportionately represented in that group, but it still deserves the same kind of attention that any other chronic condition would give and receive the same kind of treatment. So it sounds like to start, it starts with addressing that value system, but there's also some, you know, some funding that needs to come with it. Like we need to make sure that people have access to health insurance, because I know, like you mentioned, that transition stage is a huge gap. I mean, I know ACA assists in some way by at least making sure that people can stay on their parents' insurance a little bit longer, but we still see that individuals may fall off a cliff at some point because they don't have access to insurance during a critical period. And even, oh, I'm sorry. I, I was going to say before you even transition to that, I'm glad you said that even with insurance, even if they were in ACA, there's uh, there's a lot of disparity even there because if they can't afford their premiums, then it's still not going to help. Um, and one thing that's very controversial, I'm a big advocate of uh, Medicare for all. I'm a big advocate of universal health care. I think most people with chronic diseases are um, because we were born with our diseases, um, you know, genetic diseases. We were born with our diseases. Um, it's something that we didn't have a, a, a choice about. We were born with it. Um, and so to see how people penalize folks for a disease that they were born with, it's just to me out of this world. And I think uh, my next go to tackle is CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, because I think that's an issue. There, there are a lot of sickle cell patients, me included, who face stigma and uh, issues when it comes to even accessing uh, Social Security benefits. Um, I won't go too much in detail with that, but I was denied, well, I was cut off from my Social Security, which brought me Medicaid and Medicare benefits because they said, uh, because my hemoglobin was too high, basically the letter was saying, praise the Lord, it's a miracle, you're cured because of some type of lab test. And that's not how sickle cell works. That's not how any disease that I know about works. Just because I have a high hemoglobin doesn't mean this disease has went away. I still need uh, maintenance. I still need to see my doctor and get prescriptions. So to just say I'm cutting you off because your hemoglobin is great, you're penalizing me for uh, progressing. Like I, it's like you said, the value systems have to change. We have to educate not only providers. We have to educate HHS, CDC, uh, CMS, these government agencies that make policy decisions about diseases they know nothing about. Um, and so if there's somebody who doesn't really know what sickle cell disease is about, but they're making policy decisions on who gets access to most sickle cell patients 
will tell you they if they are on Social Security or Medicaid or Medicare, they probably were denied five or six, seven, eight, nine times before they got it. Yet I have an aunt who has migraines. She applied once, approved. Her cousin has asthma, applied once, approved. What, what's the disconnect there? You know what I mean? Like, and again, in my comparison is not to be shady, but if I compared sickle cell to migraines, I would think that sickle cell is a lot more severe than migraines, you know? Help me out if I'm, if I'm reaching here. But uh, these are the things that we as patients have to deal with every day. Um, the invalidation of our pain, like you said about the tolerance of black pain. We're invalidated. I had a black nurse from the, I can't remember which island, I think Turks and Caicos. Um, one time last year when I was hospitalized, and I'm a hush and let you move on. I know you wanted to move on. And um, I could say uh, when I'm in the hospital, they, I normally receive um, uh, Dilaudid, two milligrams of Dilaudid for my pain. And for anybody who knows what Dilaudid is, it's very strong. <laughs> it's stronger than morphine. And when you go into an emergency room and say, I want two milligrams of Dilaudid, they're going to look at you like you come in here to get high. No, that's what addresses my pain because it's so excruciating. I, at this point, I'm admitted. The nurse comes in to administer my pain medicine because I'm, you know, I call for the nurse. I'm in pain. I need my medicine. She says, "Well, back where I'm from, we just give sickle cell patients Tylenol and 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 that's it. And y'all Americans, y'all can't handle pain. And y'all and it just she went off the rails about how it." Those are the attitudes that that hinder people from the access that they want or that they deserve. Like I don't need to hear about what you did in your other country, ma'am. You my nurse, so you give me my medicine. Like these are the things that are barriers because people have in their mind a preconceived notion that black people, even other black people, you you could take it here's basically saying we just gave y'all Tylenol because you we could tolerate you could tolerate it. Um, so the invalidation is there of not only your pain, but your experience. Um, people don't think of sickle cell as a disability. When people learn that I'm a male and I'm on disability, oh, you don't work? Oh, a man that don't work, don't eat, you know, there's so many things that spiral from living with a chronic illness. So I want to go back just a little bit to where we were talking about the government agencies who are making policy decisions. And this may not turn into a question. <laughs> it's so critical that we have individuals with lived experience and decision-making roles. And I feel like this is a great example of why, because an individual who understands what that pain management looks like will have a completely different approach on what benefits should be available to individuals across insurance plans or across so in the middle of the work, right, what keeps you going? What's, what's your why for advocating for sickle cell patients, for pursuing social work, for the doctoral, because that in itself suggests that, you know, you want to be in a space where you can influence others. So what's, mm -hmm. what's your why? Uh, I think I've said it resoundingly through this uh, podcast is, um, again, I probably may be just very biased, but because I've suffered so much with uh, living with this disease, that really drives me up. A lot of the things that I fight for, 
I may not even be able to reap in my lifetime, but if I could fight for something for other generations after me to benefit from, that's what drives me. That's my why. Um, everything is not always about me. Um, I've gotten to a, a place in my disease where I'm not as severe. I was way more sicker as a child. Um, and so now I'm taking the energy that I do have um, to make it better for younger people who have or people who aren't even born yet, but in the next 50 to 100 years, hopefully they will have a better outcome than they're having, especially when I was growing up. So that's, that's my main why. And how do you take care of yourself in the midst of everything else? And I know that that question may mean something very different to you, but I'm really getting at the, your self-care routine. Yeah. Um, I don't have like a set, like written plan for self-care, but um, I try to, uh, especially now that I'm a new grad student, I try to be okay with not getting things done when I think they should be. And I say that to say I'm, I'm someone who I have multiple calendars, I have notepads, I write things down, I make lists, and that's what, that's what drives me. If I don't write it down, it doesn't get done. I'm that kind of person. Um, and I'm also that kind of person, if I wrote it down and I don't do it, I feel like guilty. <laughs> um, and so I've gotten to the point where a lot of my self-care is around the fact that I'm going to bed, I'm tired, I'm going to sleep, know it, I didn't get my paper done, I can do it tomorrow. Um, and of course, that may turn into procrastination, but I try not to let it do. But um, I think with the rigor of my undergraduate experience and being a McNair scholar, I was under a lot of pressure to always be turning in research, always turning in a thesis, always turning in assignments that um, I felt that if I wasn't busy, I wasn't doing something. So most of my self-care isn't elaborate. Just be able to go to sleep when I'm tired <laughs> or just be able to binge something on Netflix when I don't feel like doing anything. That, that means the world, especially living with a chronic disease, having sickle cell, the pain is excruciating, but if people are wondering who may not know anybody with sickle cell, the uh, fatigue is the exhaustion. That is the biggest to me hurdle to get over. I'm, especially now as a graduate student, I am more exhausted now than I've ever been. And to just take a nap on the couch like somebody's granddaddy is the best thing in the world. <laughs> to be able to fall asleep on the couch while I'm watching TV is, self-care um, because I can be a lot a lot more tired than than the average person and, and you just crossed so I know you know what it means to be tired so so being able to rest I know exactly what that means yes sir Andrea it's been great catching up because like I mentioned though we don't talk often I do admire you from afar just everything that you're doing and definitely wishing you continued success I appreciate but, it how do people keep up with you, the advocacy that you're doing, your research, anywhere that they can find you on social media? Yeah, so um, on Facebook, you could just search Andre Marcel Harris. I should be the only Andre Marcel Harris to come up. Um, and that's why I normally go with my middle name too, so that you know you can find me. Um, on Twitter, I'm Andre Harris 89 at Andre Harris 89. Instagram, Andre Marcel Harris. Um, 
I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Snapchat. I'm, I'm an older millennial. I don't know how to use it. I don't even know what my username is. So if you find me on Snapchat, that's cool too. <laughs> um, and there are other, I, I am a national advocate with the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America. So if you want to learn more about sickle cell disease and what's going on from a policy standpoint, from research, you can always go to the SCDAA website. You can just search uh, Sickle Cell Disease Association of America. Um, and, and most anything you see sickle cell related, I have, I have seen it um, before you've seen it. Anybody that's listening, because I sit on several advisory boards, um, federal advisory boards. So you could go to SEDAA, anything that's sickle cell related, you could see it. Um, and you should be able to see me and other advocates there. Um, and I also want to plug uh, Black Men in Public Health and Black Men in Social Work. Black Men in Public Health is not mine, like my baby, but it's a friend of mine's baby. He was also a doctoral student, a doctor PH student. Um, remember what school he's at but you could type in black men in, in public health you should find us on facebook twitter and instagram and also linkedin and then also my baby is black men in social work and that is where james and i believe initially connected um but very quickly i as an undergraduate student in north carolina at federal state university um, even though it was at HBCU, um, it was very little Black men in my program. Um, and so one day I just kind of realized there's not a lot of people that look like me um, in social work. So I started a Facebook group, James, and actually in a couple, of, a couple of weeks we'll have like our third year anniversary, right? Um, but I started the group and I think it was like, five of us including me in the group and for maybe maybe almost a year there was only five of us and then it began to uh another one of my former colleagues joined and he began to invite people and then it just started to spark so now i think we are almost at two thousand members i think i can't remember i have to go look um but if you are black men in social work please join our facebook group you can just uh, search Black Men in Social Work. Um, you can follow us, our page on Facebook. You can follow us on Instagram, Black Men in Social Work, uh, Black Men in SW um, on Twitter. That is a community that I've really enjoyed watching and being a part of because I don't always lead with the fact that I'm a social worker. Like I have an MSW clearly, but because I'm not micro, I often like exclude myself from the social worker parties. But you know, being in that group and offering like mentorship because people are asking like hey how do i get a job like mm -hmm. look over people's resumes people's cover letters like it's it's really exciting and and i yeah. appreciate you for facilitating i appreciate people like you who are doing that because of course i i can't do it and, and that's another thing people when they find out that i am the person who created this black minute social work platform I just got my BSW in December of 2019. People are thinking that I'm a professor with a PhD in social work, or I'm someone who's been a practitioner for 20, 30 years. I just, I, when I created the group, I was still in my BSW program, but it was just the fact that I'm grateful that, are, that are 
people like you and there there are people that are in the group who are professors who are practitioners that are in the group that can continue vision that I did have and, and of course um, for those that are listening who do follow and who do may join um, I want to make sure that it, it it's not just a Facebook group I want to do more with it and and do more to help mentor it and provide again like I said another generation um, so hopefully that there would be a lot more men inspired to get into the uh, field of social work, especially macro. Uh, I'm macro too, and, and a lot of uh, micro social workers be shading us like we're not real social workers. But as mm -hmm. long as I got my degree from a CSW accredited uh, program, I'm a social worker. So <laughs> if you listening, I'm a social worker too. <laughs> I got some ideas on ways that we can we can go to the next level, but we can we can have those conversations offline. Absolutely. Well, Andre, it's been great connecting here. Is there anything else that you would like to drive home for the listeners, um, whether it's about you, about sickle cell disease? Is there something that you want to leave the people with? Again, if you couldn't tell, this is uh, my passion, my life's work, um, as James said. The lived experience is so important, and that's something that I always talk about, and that I think that's what grants me access to a lot of spaces is because I've lived it. Um, and so I admonish people who uh, have people with sickle cell in their family or friends that have sickle cell, if you know, um, be there for support. Uh, like I said, there's a lot of equity issues that they're facing that they may not have the support that they need. So if they need a, a ride to the doctor, don't get to the doctor be that uh support for them because that will go a long way and i would just say again uh, there's a couple of things i could drive home in the next like minute donate blood i know it's a middle of a pandemic but if you can donate blood that is that means the world to the sickle cell community donating bone marrow that means the world to the community um volunteering at sickle cell clinics there's so many things you could do um and like i said a lot of people they go with hiv they go with cancer they go with diabetes they volunteer at these uh agencies but most people don't don't help the sickle cell community so we need a lot more people from the community to support us so if you're listening and you can donate blood i admonish you to do that um i can provide resources to james if he wants um, for people to find different ways to get involved, but please get involved. If you're a social worker, we need more social workers involved in in sickle cell care and hematologies. Um, that is what really what I want to drive home, and that is not a black disease. That's the last thing I'm gonna say. Well, thanks, James, for having me on your show today. I really am honored, and I appreciate it. Of course, I'd like to thank Andre for joining us on the podcast. I think when we consider certain diseases that have been racialized, it changes the way that we talk about it. It changes the ways that we pursue treatment. It changes the care, it changes the outcomes. Like all of these things are true. And I think COVID-19 would be another really good example of ways that we've racialized diseases. I give this COVID-19 and Black Lives presentation where I call out the fact that in the early onset of covid public health officials and government officials were actually referring to it as the Kung flu and the Chinese virus. Like that's, that's problematic. We, we can't do that. 
and even to the point of the variants now, like you, you don't call it the, the South African variant. Like it, it, it holds such weight in the way that we articulate and it becomes a part of our culture. So that's that's something I want us all just to be mindful of. If you're listening to this on the day that it was released, so that's April 14th, know that tomorrow, April 15th, a.k.a. tax day, I will be defending my capstone. And so it is my hope that the next time you hear from me, I'll be Dr. James Bell III. So send one up in the air for me, if that's your thing. Much appreciated in advance. Speaking of the next time you hear from me, we have an episode in two weeks where we will be talking about gun violence and advocacy. And I'm excited because many of you may know the American Public Health Association a few years back really called out gun violence as a public health issue. And it just there's so many things to unpack in the conversation. And so we have a community of practice episode. Really excited to bring these folks together to talk about what we could be doing to address the inequities there and also some of the discourse when it comes to gun violence, because I really want to crack on that whole idea of black on black crime and why the concept is is rooted in myth and stereotype. As always, you can follow us on social media. That is at Equity Matters Podcast. We are closer and closer to a thousand followers. Thank you for following us. If you're listening to this and you're not following us, please do so. We're also on Twitter. That's at Equity Matters PC. And I'm just uh, amazed by the conversations and the people that I've met and the people who are out there doing the work and just salute to you all. I, I appreciate you for tuning in. I appreciate you for sharing content. It's it's been a, a great ride. So and I don't want to say that like I'm signing off and retiring. I, I've got a lot more to do. So. Until next time, I hope that you always remember, you always recall, you never forget that equity matters.